We are live on Facebook. All right. Hello and welcome to Tracy Schatz Voices for Change show. She is the creator of a powerful award-winning documentary called Finding Jen's Voice. And every Tuesday we have the privilege at Incandescent to produce her show on Incandescent Radio and Incandescent TV. I'm Hope Katz Gibbs, producer of the show. Tracy and I know you are going to learn a lot from today's guest. Janine Lattice is a longtime journalist who has written for practically every US publication you have ever read. And she is also the author of a very important emotional international bestseller called If I Am Missing or Dead, A Sister's Story of Love, Murder, and Liberation. Today's topic, emotional abuse. So take it away, Tracy. Hi, thank you. And thank you, Janine, for joining us. Um, I met Janine when I was filming Finding Jen's Voice and uh, Janine has such a powerful story to tell. Um, I don't think I ever told you this, Janine, but my editor called you the um, uh, soundbite queen. Like everything that came out of your mouth, he wanted to put into the film because it was so powerful and uh, succinct. And, you know, not surprisingly, Janine is a writer. Um, so she, communication is her thing. She's good at it. And we're really pleased that she can share um, a really difficult subject with us, um, with her skills. Um, so uh, Janine wrote this book, If I Am Missing or Dead, um, and it has been published in how many languages, Janine? Six languages, and it's still selling 14 years later. Wow. So, you know, when I released Finding Jen's Voice in 2015, I figured in a couple of years it would be obsolete and, and nobody would care about it anymore. Um, Ten years after Jen was killed, it's still more relevant than ever. And just like your book, unfortunately, uh, the need for um, this information is, is just overwhelming um, worldwide. It's so ubiquitous and I would love to be put out of business, you know? Same. Yeah. Every time I speak at like the 30 year anniversary of a shelter, I'm always saying, you know, thank you for all of you for being here, but I'm so sorry we all still have to be here. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about how you came to write this book, Janine. Um, when I read that book, I was working, as you say, as a journalist writing for magazines and it was funny because I was, I was speaking on the topic of making business writing more interesting. But what I was really doing, and I didn't know that, was practicing for a speaking career. So I was married and I was in a co controlling marriage, a co coercive, only occasionally violent marriage. And um, I was getting out of it. And it was my sister, Amy, who was my biggest support. And I remember that on May 4th, 2002, I actually said to my husband, okay, it's over, we have to end it. And we, we split on May 4th. And, you know, I called Amy and then the next day I called Amy and cried. And, you know, for weeks she took all my phone calls. And sometimes we just talked about movies and books and had fun, but sometimes she was really carrying my pain with me. And then on the 4th of July, she and I were talking. So it's, you know, exactly two months later, we're chatting and she was planting flowers in front of her new house and she was baking bread for her new sweetheart. 
she had met this cowboy, you know, cowboy hat, rodeo belt buckle, big gold chain with a cross on it. And she was just so happy. I mean, he had priors, but nothing bad, right? Nothing, he'd written some checks that were bad. He had had some DUIs. He once test drove a pickup truck and forgot to bring it back. Oops. But as she said, you know, he hadn't ever hurt anybody. He'd never done anything bad. And Amy was happy. And so I asked her on the 4th of July, you know, are you guys going to go watch fireworks tonight? And she said, oh, we're going to make our own fireworks. And we laughed, right? And I said, you know, I love you. And she said, I love you. And four days later, my big sister called and said, have you heard from Amy? And that's when the search began. Um, there were search dogs, there were helicopters, there were TV cameras. We all flew into Knoxville where she was living. You know, we, we walked trails, we searched bushes, they searched the riverbanks for her. And then I had to, finally I had to go home because I had a three-year-old at home. And so I needed to get back home. And a couple of weeks later on a Monday, my mom called and she said, they found Amy. And I mean, obviously they hadn't found Amy. They hadn't found the big laugh, you know, and the stupid jokes. What they had found was her body. He had strangled her and buried her at a construction site. So I took what I can do, which is write. And I wrote, and I wrote, and I wrote, and I wrote. And, you know, as I just said a second ago, the problem is so ubiquitous that it was not only well published, but it was well promoted at the time it was published. And we were able to get this book into the hands of universities, prisons, um, therapy groups, just general population book clubs. And it just took off here, especially here in, in uh, Great Britain, but also in South Africa where they've got a real misogyny problem and Australia, it sold like hotcakes, both of those two places because of the problems that they have. Wow. So that led to a speaking career, which has taken me around the world with the United States Navy, Major League Baseball, the World Bank, corporations, because, you know, most of us don't recognize abuse. I, I like to say, you know, does a fish see water? You know, if it's what you're imbued with, if you're infused in it, you live in it all the time, you're not going to see it as abuse. Is it, can I show you the power and control wheel? I think people would really find that. Uh, yeah, helpful. absolutely. Let me pull this up really quickly. So for people who don't know about this, this is called the Duluth Power and Control Wheel. And it came out of the Domestic Abuse Intervention Project in Duluth, Minnesota. And most people think, when they think of abuse, they think of punching and slapping and kicking and stabbing and shooting. But it, the truth is, is there's this whole spectrum of coercive control that's inherent in an abusive relationship. Some of the abuse controls the, the victim, the abused partner. So instead of making you like blossom into your fullest self, they squeeze you down. You know, they're jealous of other men or women, whatever you're attracted to. And so you learn not to talk to them. And then your, your girlfriends, they're just a bunch of man haters and family. We're family now until you're pretty much all alone. And there's nobody to tell you that what you're putting up with is actually abuse. 
if you've been raised to believe that you are whatever your flaw is, you know, utterly unlovable, and then an abuser comes along and tells you you are utterly unlovable, it's going to get inside and you're going to start believing it. And that's the center of emotional abuse. Yeah, I, I always say that um, one of the, the biggest problems around domestic violence is that we have this um, idea that it's always about broken bones and black eyes. And um, that shuts down the conversation that needs to be had with so many people who are in those coercive controlling relationships that you just described. Right. It wasn't that bad. He only shoved me once. He only grabbed my wrists and squeezed really hard and left little bruises. He only took my work clothes and he put them in the front yard and he hit them with lighter fluid and lit them. He only didn't come home from work and watch the kids. So I lost my job and now I'm financially dependent on him. And so I can't leave. He only hid my car keys so I couldn't go. She only told all of my friends my secrets. She only got on my social media and started sending out texts to my friends that insulted them. And so my friends left me. And so I didn't have anybody in my life but her. These are all coercive controlling behaviors. Somebody takes your phone and they start zipping through your, your texts. Oh, you're talking to her? What are you doing talking to her? Why are you talking to her? Your life just gets smaller and smaller and smaller. It makes it really hard to escape. If you can find yourself at that place where you recognize that you need to escape. Right. Which is where cutting out all the other people in your life is part of it. That isolation is a big part of a controlling relationship. Right. But, you know, I don't know what your thing is, you know, what you don't like about yourself. But here's what they do. You're stupid. You're fat. You're ugly. If you leave me, you'll never see the kids again. If you leave me, I'm going to kill the dog. If you leave me, I'm going to kill myself. Nobody else is ever going to want you. You're lucky I'm willing to put up with you because you are utterly and completely unlovable. Now think about that. That, that doesn't leave a bruise per se, but it certainly leaves a scar. And if you don't have anybody else around you propping you up and saying, you know, calling that for what it is, and you you just come to believe it. Yeah. The survivors that I've spoken to um, over the years have told me that, and nearly every single person, whether or not they experience physical abuse, experienced emotional abuse. They've said emotional abuse is harder to heal from. And a lot of it is implied, you know, they punch next to your face. They've chosen not to actually punch you in the face or they break your things, right? People say, she just lost control and started throwing things. She didn't lose control. She threw your things. She threw your favorite trophy. She didn't throw her grandmother's china cup. They, they are very much in control as they try to control. Yeah, it's, it's insane how much an abuser can limit and make you live in fear. So you walk through the door and you're like, I don't know whether the good sweetheart's going to be here or the bad sweetheart's going to be here. And I'll just tiptoe in. I used to hear the garage door open at my home with my husband. And I, and I immediately, my heart rate would start going like this because it could be the romantic loving man who supports me and cares about me, or it could be the one who 
thought I talked to another man, or it could be the one who I, you know, didn't cook dinner well enough for, and I was going to be up all night with a finger in my chest. Is that, is that violence? You know, I mean, it's physically, it really is not really violence, but it's terrifying. It's not something that the police are going to respond to. That's right. That's yeah. exactly right, which is why people end up on their own. Part of the reason I wrote the book is because it's, you know, I get a lot of emails from people saying, I handed it to my aunt and we finally talked. I handed it to my sister and we finally talked. My mom gave me your book. I thought I had hidden it, but it turns out she saw it all along. And, you know, it's tools like your movie, my book, lots of other resources out there, even the Duluth Power and Control Wheel that free people up to look at it and have a conversation. A, a question about your book. Tell us about the title. So when my sister was missing, they found a note taped to the inside of her desk drawer at work. And it was addressed to the Knox County Sheriff's Department. And it said, if I am missing or dead, pick up Ron Ball. And Ron Ball was the live-in boyfriend. It described their fights. It listed all the money he owed her. Because remember, he was a former convicted individual. So he had a hard time finding a job. So she, she had bought him a truck and a trailer and ladders and sprayers, you know, tarps, everything it took to build a house painting business. And so there was this enormous list of debts. And then it had this sentence, I hope someday to find this and think it's funny, but if I don't, don't let him get away with it. It was dated 10 weeks before we found her. So for 10 weeks, she was afraid. And for 10 weeks, she didn't tell anyone. And I got to tell you, man, when that happens, it's like when you lose somebody to suicide, there's a tremendous amount of time spent wondering what you didn't hear, what you didn't see. Were you too selfish in your conversations? You feel guilty because you didn't stop them from the behavior that ended up ending their lives. It's, you know, here we were talking about my divorce all the time. Now I, I have multiple siblings and my sister was very close to my mother and she didn't tell anybody. So what do you, what, what are the dynamics that allow somebody to suspect and have that modicum of fear? I mean, you've got to have enough fear to, to write up the letter and type it into your desk drawer. Mm -hmm. and and address it to the police right you've got to there's got to be a part of you that says i'm living a dangerous life and this something is bad could happen right so how do you get from that place to also um not telling anybody and you know and staying alone in that fear what are the dynamics so some of the dynamics are simply that um like my sister said prior to her death, I just don't want you to think of me as the family screw up. She didn't want to admit it because she was ashamed. You know, one of the things we haven't talked about is that, um, gosh, how many years prior? You know, maybe I was in my late 20s when I was on a ski trip and my boyfriend broke my nose and my ribs 
and I looked like that. I had the, you know, I had black eyes and they, they black turned red, turned green and it drifted down my face. I mean, it took weeks for all of it to stop. Mm-hmm. Two black eyes, you know, nose off to the side that they had to straighten out. And when I was going through the airport, trying to get out of there, the desk clerk, the flight attendant person said to me, you know, honey, I can help you. I can get you off of this plane and away from him. And I was just too embarrassed to admit that that that's what had happened, that I was a battered woman. And I remember afterwards thinking, you know, my uncle Tony lived five miles from where I was. And I have seven cousins in that family. I could have called Uncle Tony and Uncle Tony, Uncle Tony, he would have handled it. I mean, he would have helped me get out. But I was too ashamed to tell him that I had chosen somebody who would beat me or that I had said the wrong thing, that I had asked for it, that I had not seen it coming. And so when Amy chose not to tell people, I certainly understood it. And then if you do something like, I'm gonna say stupid, a questionable decision, like loaning somebody $60,000 so that they can start their own business. And then that person who is an ex-con rips you off because that's what happened is she was trying to, he was living with her and she was trying to break up with him and get her money back. And that's when he strangled her. So, you know, she was ashamed of having made that, that unwise decision. And she just, you know, didn't want to be the family screw up. Yeah. Shame, shame is a really powerful emotion. Um, and it's really connected to blame. Um, they, they, they rhyme, um, you know, and shame and blame um, go hand in hand. You know, um, there's so much victim blaming that goes on. And that just feeds that kind of innate shame anyhow. Right. And, I th- and I think that um, regardless of um, circumstances that women by nature want to take care of relationships they they're the they're the the people who want there's usually one person in a relationship and in a heterosexual relationship it's usually the woman who is in charge of it who's in charge of keeping it together and when things go poorly you know it's her fault so i think that blame is something we're almost raised with that shame when when things don't go well so many churches actually want the woman to cleave onto the man and, you know, obey the man. I mean, remember love, honor, and obey? Do you remember? We didn't, we didn't say that in our, our vials, I'll tell you that. <laughs> uh, you know, for the longest time, it was, I now declare you man and wife. Right. So he keeps personhood and she becomes an appendage, like a sidecar on a motorcycle. Now, all of that emotional labor was always assumed to be hers. Remember all the ads when we were younger and, you know, it would be her job to um, stay pretty for him when he got home and have his martini ready for him and, you know, look sexy and pretty, even though you just spent the whole day with kids running around and screaming. Um, All of that obligation fell on the wife in a heterosexual relationship. Yeah, and um, even though kind of times have changed in terms of somewhat in terms of household responsibilities and 
you know, and that kind of messaging we're not seeing on television so much anymore. It really hasn't changed that much um, in terms of who is still in charge of the relationship and who gets blamed. I would re I would change it since since primarily she's responsible for the relationship, right. but he's in charge. Ah, yeah. 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 Very good distinction. He's the one who's supposed to be being pleased here. So there, there, was a there was a recent social media discussion of what sorts of things abusers said to victims. Do you want to share some of those examples? You know, it, it's, uh, I'm going to look at a document while I'm saying this because there were so many of them and they were so resonant. If I question anything he said, he would just put his hands on me. Then there was, this is what the guy who beat me said. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry you made me do that. Yeah. 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 See what you made me do. You know better than to, you know, tell me I'm tailgating or driving too fast. You know better. And then it's your fault. Or you're exaggerated. You're exaggerating this. Or I never said that. Or my father's personal favorite was, you're a latest. You're supposed to have a sense of humor. He said that all the way through when my book had come out and we were trying to find a way to have some kind of relationship. His first reaction was, you're supposed to have a sense of humor. Yeah. And then, you know, there's a whole bunch of, I was only joking or you know how I feel about that or how I think about that or you're not really cold or you're not really hot or I don't have to do anything for you. It's interesting too that people go with the word, with the C word, you know? I mean, it's not enough to call a woman a bitch. You gotta go all the way nuclear with it. Right. Uh, that happens a fair amount in these relationships. Yeah, the name calling is terrible. Also, you know, a lot of, a lot of uh, abusers use religion to um, justify their behaviors, you know, God is a man. Um, if you're in certain religions, people in leadership positions are all men. Politics in the corporate world, so many of the people in charge are all men. Therefore, in the household, the person in charge should be the man. It really, um, it, it becomes a, a trap that, that, that gets harder and harder to get out of the more it, you're in it. it you know, it becomes exponentially worse as time goes by. And the more you hear those horrible insults, those abusive words, the more you start to believe them. It's also really weird to me because I'm, you know, in a healthy relationship now. And the very idea of being called even something as banal as stupid, right? would be like, what? No, that's not how you speak to you, the person you ostensibly love, right? right. And, you know, if, if somebody called me that now, I would just be so stunned and the door would hit them on the backside so fast because <laughs> I don't have, you know, I have, I have boundaries now. You know, one of the things we don't teach our young people is boundaries. You know, oh, come on, creepy Uncle Pete is just, he just loves you. That's why he's tickling you. That's why he's pulling you on his lap. That's why he's kissing your neck. He just loves you. We're not allowed to just, you know, have, be as a child and say, no, this is my body and you don't get to touch me. Right. And then you go up to remember being a young woman and it's, 
um, oh, please stop, please stop. Ha, no, really, really, I'd rather you not. Oh, that's that's great. Let me, you know, instead of just going, knock it off. Right. Because we are socialized to want to be liked, you know, to not be called a bitch, to not be called a tease. It reminds me of, uh, by the way, the new movie that's out. Have you seen A Promising Young Woman? No, I keep intending to. Is it going to kill me? <laughs> I have, I haven't watched it yet either. But I keep watching the trailer, going, I got, I gotta watch it, you know. And it's like, but I got, I gotta have the right people around me when I watch it, you know. And it feels like a, you know, middle of the afternoon one, not a before bed one. I feel like it would be the sort of thing that's upsetting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of kind of tongue in cheek, but yeah, it's pretty interesting. One of the things that, you know, we we don't really distinguish between sexual assault, rape and intimate partner violence, um, domestic violence, they're all the same thing. They're all they're all about one person inflicting pain and, and control over another person, and whether that's emotional pain or physical pain, but really taking their agency away from them um, yep. till, till they can't really find a way out. On the power and control wheel, there's also a, a sexual section. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I talk about often is that, you know, you know, not while your partner's drunk and you know, not while your partner's asleep, but also, you know, persuading, talking somebody into something. Oh, it's my birthday. I know you don't want to do this, but you know, just this one time coercing them, you know, if you do this, I'm going to be a happy man. My husband used to say to me, um, I would like wear jeans and a hoodie or something. And he'd go, he'd go, well, if you don't want to have sex, you should have just said so. So I'd end up in spike heels and a push-up bra and a mini skirt. And you're trying to walk on those things. And then at some point, you know, you complain that you're, he's walking too fast or your feet hurt. And he's like, you're the one who chose to wear that. It's right. just total your head's just spinning around. Wait a minute. Let's, but physical violence um, does creep into these emotional abuse, emotionally abusive relationships. And even um, some of the women in the film who said there was no previous history of emotion, of physical abuse, when you started to kind of like, you know, tease it apart, there'd be like, well, there was that one time you pushed me against the wall, you know, again, with holding my neck. Or, you know, there was that one time that, you know, he pushed me down or or that he raped me, you know, right? right. So the, so those, those types of physical violence do creep into um, uh, emotionally abusive relationships. But there's also the threat of physical violence. And you, you, you mentioned that a little bit bit but let's tease that out a little bit you know anytime anybody says to me he blew up once if you as you just said if you if you go back and back back and back you'll see all little places that got you closer and closer to the point where the person made you believe you deserved physical violence by the time they've persuaded you that you're unlovable and ugly and nobody else will ever want you it, it feels like a logical continuation right. that they would, again, you know, throw something, but just miss you. But they could have hit you. So see how nice they are. 
or punch the wall next to your head or kick the dog or put a hole in the wall. You know, all of those things. I saw a picture the other day of a wrench stuck in a door. Like one person had thrown a wrench at the other person and it had stuck in the door. Wow. You bet the, the person who didn't throw it behaved really well for a long time because of that terrifying behavior. Sure. Yeah. And the threat of violence is emotional abuse. Anything that makes you feel fear in your own home is emotional abuse. So what's, what's the bottom line? What's a, what's a, a healthy relationship supposed to look like? I think that we spend so much time talking about what it isn't. What is it? Well, a healthy relationship is where each person wants the fullest, most satisfying life for the other person or for the, for the family unit. So everybody's needs are taken to, into account. And it is a relationship in which each of the parties listens to the other and each of the parties is emotionally vulnerable to the other. So if one person is withholding all of their secrets, that is a form of power because now I know everything about you, but you know nothing about me and I can definitely use it against you. Right. I, I was approached at a military base in Africa by a uh, like central casting high-ranking Navy officer, right? The shoulders, you know, shoulders, waist, head with a square haircut and, you know, just super handsome, very, very, very great posture. And uh, he told me that he was sexually assaulted as a child and he had never told his wife because he was the rock that the family was built on. And if he cracked, the family would crack. But that it has an impact on their sex life. And so she's always saying, you don't find me attractive. And he couldn't tell her that the problem was that it brought him up all these horrible, painful memories for him. So that type of non-disclosure is also a form of control. Yeah. So becoming vulnerable to your partner is an important part of creating something that's healthy for both parties. Yeah, I think that's really important because I think so often we think of vulnerability in the negative sense that vulner being vulnerable is not good. Nobody wants to be vulnerable. You you want to you want to you want to be strong. You don't want to be vulnerable. But in a relationship, vulnerability is an asset if it's not used against you. It takes a great amount of trust to allow yourself to be vulnerable with your partner. Right. One of the things that controlling people do is they sweep you off your feet. They want to be in a, an exclusive relationship from the second date. They, you know, they lean in and they want to hear every story you have and all of your insecurities. And then they, you know, it feels wonderful. Like, oh my gosh, somebody's really hearing me. But consciously or unconsciously, they are gathering data that they can subsequently use against you. I don't think all abusers are Machiavellian, you know, and plan to use it against you, but they use it against you eventually. And if so, if it feels deeply off balance, like I'm sharing and yet my partner never shares, it is off balance and it needs to be addressed. Right. Yeah. Healthy relationships. Also, the other another thing you're familiar with the concept of love languages, right? Like if I feel loved by touch, 
that you feel loved by gifts. And so I'm touching you and you don't feel loved and you're giving me gifts and I don't feel loved. Right. Understanding your partner's love language and choosing to provide the love in that way, even if it's not your way, right. that's love. That's a respectful relationship. Right. And it takes, it takes time to get to know what that person's love language is. Um, it's not something that you learn on the first date. But um, very frequently, abusive relationships um, go from first date to uh, married. Yeah, glommed on to each other. Instantly. So they don't really get a chance to get to know each other. Right. And then, you know, during that first six weeks of dating, you're on your facade behavior. You're, sure. You, know, you, you don't... <laughs> You don't shove the entire big lettuce leaf of salad in your mouth on the first date, but by God, by the second month, you're just shoveling that salad in and it's, ugh. you know, I mean, whatever your imperfect behavior is, you don't show it right at first. So imagine getting locked into the role you were playing at that time because suddenly you got married to somebody or, or intensely partnered with somebody while you're wearing high heels and a miniskirt, and you've now wiped out the option of just walking around the house in your flannel jammies. I am thinking about all the things that you're saying um, and putting it in the context of the last year of people being stuck in the house with an abuser, where especially if you're that partner who pretties up for for any interaction with each other right because you know you always have to be on your best behavior you always have to look the best and and, ha and what happens when you're now 24 7 how do you how do you maintain that facade it's it's, it's probably impossible to do um which has to have impacted the rates of domestic violence you know, and, and of course, we know from all of the, the hotlines and shelters that the numbers skyrocketed during the pandemic. You've got financial stress. You've got de facto isolation. So neither party can either get perspective from somebody on the outside or get some of their needs met by somebody on the outside. Let's say you like to talk about NASCAR and your partner doesn't. And so you're, you've got that building frustration, you know, you, or you like to talk about literature, whatever it is, you know, you've got that building frustration because you don't have a, an outlet for that stuff. Right. You don't have physical exercise. Right. So you can't burn off some of the stress and tension that way. You know, I mean, many kinds of exercise was unavailable. You have the kids home 24 seven with the additional stressor of them not being able to learn online and they need supervision. And so, you know, you're just irritated as hell and possibly you're not having sex because the kids are home, which is one way people disperse anger and reconnect. You know, sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes that's um, kind of a crutch as opposed to um, solving the problem. You know, well, let's just make love and then we'll both feel better. Right. Um, but all of those things led to, and then also you know, I'm going to go out and get infected and come home, or, or I'm going to tell your boss that you went out in public when you're not supposed to go out in public. There was just an, another layer of stress and another layer of threats the whole time. Right. I mean, not even be able to go out to the grocery store and have 10 minutes to yourself 
and I don't know about anybody else, but when my kids were little, you couldn't even go to the bathroom without somebody like knock, 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 like incessantly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Not so. It's it. All of these things around emotional abuse are are heightened right now because um, everybody's feeling, I think, a little bit more vulnerable after the last year. Um, so even the best of relationships experience stress. Right. Um, and the worst relationships, um, you know, the, the data is going to be a while coming out. And I know that there are a lot of people who are researching um, the data right now, but it's, it's incredibly slow under normal circumstances um, to get particularly homicide data around intimate partner violence. But um, it's kind of scary and, and wondering you know, what we're going to see in two years when all, all the, you know, chips are counted. And again, you're talking about the, the countable stuff, you know, not the, not the coercive control, not the emotional right. wounds, you know, you're talking about stuff. Some, the police would count, Yeah. you know, even physical abuse doesn't necessarily get counted because if he just shoved you backward and you fell over the coffee table and bruised your tailbone, Police aren't going to do anything about that, right? No. And and a lot of people um, didn't go to the emergency rooms over the last year, right? Um, because they were afraid. They were like, "Yeah, I, I think I might have a broken arm, but I don't. I'm afraid that if I go to the emergency room, I'm going to catch COVID and die." Exactly. Um, discouraged from going. Yeah. You know, my um, my lovely nose required help so imagine you know if you couldn't go in and get help during the pandemic um you know i you and i both know people who have gunshot wounds Mm -hmm. and the the reminder is there every time they look in the mirror you know the same with a friend of mine who had her occipital bone broken and um for the rest of her life her face was askance you know i mean whatever the right word is. It was crooked right there. It wasn't symmetrical anymore. Every time she looked in the mirror, she had to face it again because it wasn't fixed at the time that it happened. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's been a, um, it's, yeah, it's been a rough year. Um, you've had an incredible journey from, uh, experiencing several abusive relationships, losing your sister, and making it your life's mission to tell the world, cut it out, <laughs> and, right. uh, and 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 we can do better, and you deserve better. Tell us, tell us about that. How, how did you get to this place of self awareness? How, and what do you recommend to other people who are on this journey, who are trying to get to a place of feeling whole and. Um, like they're, you know, like you would slam the door on on your boyfriend if he, you know, gave you a hard time. How do you get there? So one of the things that remember how we are all raised that the only way you have values if you're partnered, you know, if you if you don't have a boyfriend or a girlfriend or if you're not married and you go home to the family function, you know, what's wrong with you? Why don't you have a? Well, maybe what is better. And especially for that generation that went from their parents' home to their spouse's home without ever living independently, is to live independently 
for a sustained period of time, you know, a year without being in a relationship with anybody else so that you know that you can make friends, that you can entertain yourself, that you can support yourself, that you can figure out what to do about a clogged sink. And then when you go back into a partnership, you are not desperate and needy, you know, like, oh, you know, go ahead and be over me because I can't handle it. Instead, you're two solid human beings who kind of choose to lean in and balance against each other. But that time of being alone and being self-sufficient and not needing a partner in order to feel complete then makes you much more whole and able to find another person who is also whole. When you are vulnerable, um, when you have low self-esteem and you're a bully, because a lot of bullies have low self-esteem, and you find someone with low self-esteem who tends to be a victim, whoop, you find them immediately. But when you're a bully and you find somebody who's solid and, and healthy by themselves, there's, you know, there's nothing there for you and you, you're not attracted. Yeah. So the best thing you can do is actually be in a great relationship with yourself. I love that. Yeah. I love that. And you do that by, um, by spending time with yourself, of course, um, and living independently. But um, I think you, you also do that by validating yourself. And, and even as, you know, I mean, I've, I've been married for a long time, over 30 years. And, you know, you st- I still have to go back and um, make friends with myself in order to stay strong and be a good partner, you know, to keep you know, myself I- help- healthy, you know? Yeah. When I was married, um, we were so jealous that we didn't do it, things independently because if you go out and have fun without me, then, you know, in his case, he was afraid I would leave him if I went out and had successes or happinesses that didn't include him. When I meet healthy couples, one of them likes to play tennis, you know, and the other one goes to a book club, but they are each, you know, whole individuals who choose to be together. And when you give up all the things that were uniquely yours for a couple, for a partnership, then you're going down the road that that you were talking about where you need to reset and start loving yourself again. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's really important that it's, and to understand that it's kind of an ongoing, um, it's, it's not a once and done. Right. It's a process. Sort of like being physically fit. You can't just get there and then stop. You have to keep right. it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think it's I th- I think that there are um there are so many things that we don't know and we just keep learning and um I, that's why I like doing this podcast and talking to smart people like you who who help help us to have these conversations. So I'm really appreciative of you joining us today, Janine. Well, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Sure. So, and so for those of you who haven't, you can find it uh, through the publisher, through Amazon, through Barnes and Noble, through your independent bookstore, through your independent bookstore. Please support them first, if you can. Um, if I am missing or dead, um, it, it's it's uh, an important read and. Um, I think that one of the reasons your book has done so well, um, Janine, is not just because of how 
much as needed. But because of your ability to tell the story in a way that, um, you know, there, there, there are times in there that you chuckle, you know, that you kind of chuckle at human nature, you chuckle at yourself and, and there, and it's not, um, it's not a depressing book. Unbelievably. I'm so glad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's funny when somebody tells me they read it in one day, I'm like, okay, I, I, I bled over every one of those sentences. Can you go back and read it again, please. <laughs> I think I've read it a couple of times, <laughs> but I do think the first time might've been in a day <laughs> because it, it is, it's, um, I don't want to say it's an easy read. It's definitely not an easy read, but it's a compelling read. It, it's kind of hard to put down. So, uh, just a side note is that uh, when you have written a memoir and you are dating and <sighs> read the memoir, you know, and now all of a sudden again, they know everything about you and you know that their name is Sam. <laughs> <You know? laughs> oh my gosh. Anybody out there who's considering writing a memoir, take into account how much everybody will know about you before you know anything about them, because it's a weird one. Yeah. It's almost a Rorschach test, really, because, you know, if they respond with deep discomfort and, and or justify away the abuser's behaviors, yeah. that's excellent information. Thank you for giving it to me so early. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think that... Um, with social media, we've all, maybe not we've all, but certainly uh, there's a whole generation out there that is just um, giving people access to their innermost feelings, whether they thought about it in the long term or not. Um, you were calculated about it, but I think uh, that's a whole nother subject. Yeah. <laughs> how, how people can use social media in a way that um, is abusive as well. So. Oh, we are out of time. So I really, really want to thank you for being here. Um, and you have a website, JanineLatest.com. Is that right? Is correct. And there, there's a TEDx on there. And um, there are audio recordings of me speaking. So if there's anything, if somebody wants to hear the whole story unfurl, it's available there. Yeah. And um and again, you know, I, I I recently listened to a couple of those, and and I, you had me laughing, and I was like, I just forgot how funny Janine is. Um, I'm just telling these horrible stories, but I'm sitting here like got tears running down my face, not because I'm crying, but because I'm laughing. Um, so you you've um, you are available for public speaking. I know you're doing it via Zoom all over the place. I'm vaccinated now, so I get to actually go on site for places. Yeah, yeah me too. Me too. So exciting. Um, yeah. So anybody who out who's out there who would like to hear more of Janine's story or bringing it, bring her in for your event, she's available. So give her a buzz. All right. Me through that website that that Tracy mentioned, JanineLatest.com. Sounds I always correct. tell people that if you. Uh, can't find me on Google, you really need to work on your Google skills. <laughs> <laughs> we will put, uh, for, for those of us who can't spell or whatever, we will put it in our um, notes for the podcast. Um, so again, thanks everybody. Thanks Hope for um, hosting us and uh, we will see you soon.
Thank you, Janine, that your story is breathtaking and um, we're sorry for your loss, but thank you for being out there as an amazing advocate and teacher to us all. Thank you, really appreciate that. Yes, and everything will be hyperlinked so you can get to Janine. Thank you, amazing Tracy Schott, creator of Voices for Change and Finding Jen's Voice, a film that everyone must see. And we'll talk to you more about that soon. Check in every Tuesday, 1 p.m. Eastern, and we will be back with you next week. Have a great one. Bye.